Before we begin this week's episode, I have a couple of announcements. The first announcement is that I have created a Patreon account. So if you like the show and would like to donate so that I can keep making the show bigger and better, just go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast. I have four different tiers of donation you can make or donate whatever you can. The donations will go a long way to further the quality of this podcast. Plus your donation will get you exclusive access to things such as merchandise and stickers, as well as bonus content, all of which I hope to have in the future. Also, I have set a goal for my Patreon account. If I can get donations up to $200 a month, then every month at random I will select one of my Patreons, and I will have them record the opening of one episode per month to air at the beginning of the show. And at the end of every episode, I will give a shout out to all my donors. The second announcement is that I would like to ask all of my listeners to do me a huge favor and rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. I know it seems like a small thing, but it helps the show out tremendously. The more reviews, and the better the reviews are, the more noticeable the show becomes on those platforms. So if you like the show, leave a 5-star review. And if you don't like the show, leave a 5-star review anyway. This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Last episode, we went over Dennis Nilsson's childhood, the effect his grandfather's death had upon him. We also went over his military career during which time he started developing necrophilic fantasies, and how his fantasies turned into murder when he moved to London. Now we return to London in the early 1980s, and to 23 Cranley Gardens, the flat where Nilsson spiraled further into depravity. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, Part 2 of Dennis Nilsson, The Muswell Hill Murderer. Cranley Gardens, Nielsen had no access to a garden, and as he resided in an attic flat, he was unable to stow any bodies beneath his floorboards. For almost two months, any acquaintances Nielsen encountered and lured to his flat were not assaulted in any manner, although he did attempt to strangle a 19-year-old student named Paul Nobbs on November 23, 1981, but restrained himself from completing the act. 
In March 1982, Nielsen encountered a 23-year-old named John Howlett as Nielsen drank in a pub located close to Leicester Square. Howlett was lured to Nielsen's flat on the promise of continuing drinking with Nielsen. At Cranley Gardens, both Nielsen and Howlett drank as they watched a film, before Howlett walked into Nielsen's front room and fell asleep in the bed. One hour later, Nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to rouse Howlett, then sat on the edge of the bed drinking rum as he stared at Howlett before deciding to kill him. Following a ferocious struggle in which Howlett himself attempted to strangle his attacker, Nielsen strangled Howlett into unconsciousness with an upholstery strap before returning to his living room, shaking from the, quote, stress of the struggle, in which he had believed he would be overpowered. On three occasions over the following ten minutes, Nielsen unsuccessfully attempted to kill this victim. After noting he had resumed breathing, before deciding to fill his bathtub with water and drown him. For over a week following Howlett's murder, Nielsen's own neck bore the victim's finger impressions. In May 1982, Nielsen encountered Carl Stotter, a 21-year-old homosexual, as the youth drank at the Black Cap Pub in Camden. Nielsen engaged Stotter in conversation, discovering the youth was depressed following a failed relationship. After plying the youth with alcohol, Nielsen invited Strader to his flat, assuring his guest that he had no intention of sexual activity. At Nielsen's flat, Strader consumed further alcohol before falling asleep upon an open sleeping bag. He later awoke to find himself being strangled with Nielsen loudly whispering, quote, stay still. In his subsequent testimony at Nielsen's trial, Strader stated he initially believed Nielsen was trying to free him from the zip of the sleeping bag before he returned to a state of unconsciousness. He then vaguely recalled hearing, quote, water running before realizing he was immersed in the water and that Nielsen was attempting to drown him. After briefly succeeding in raising his head above water, Strader gasped the words, quote, no more, please, no more, unquote before Nielsen again submerged Strotter's head beneath the water. Believing he had killed Strotter, Nielsen seated the youth in his armchair, then noticed his mongrel dog, Bleep, licking Strotter's face. Nielsen realized the tiniest thread of life still clung in the youth. He rubbed Strotter's limbs and heart to increase circulation, covered the youth's body in blankets, then laid him upon his bed. When Strader regained consciousness, Nielsen embraced him. He then explained to Strader he had almost strangled himself on the zip of the sleeping bag and that he had resuscitated him. Over the following two days, Strader repeatedly lapsed in and out of consciousness. When Strader had regained enough strength to question Nielsen as to the recollections of being strangled and immersed in cold water, Nielsen explained that he had become caught in the zip of the sleeping bag following a nightmare, and that he had placed him in cold water as, quote, you were in shock. Nielsen then led Strader to a nearby railway station, where he informed the youth he hoped they might meet again, before he bade him farewell. 
Three months after Nielsen's June 1982 promotion to the position of executive officer in his employment, he encountered a 27-year-old named Graham Allen attempting to hail a taxi in Shaftesbury Avenue. Allen accepted Nielsen's offer to accompany him to Cranley Gardens for a meal. As had been the case with several previous victims, Nielsen stated he could not recall the precise moment he had strangled Allen, but recalled approaching him as he sat eating an omelet with the full intention of murdering him. Allen's body was retained in the bathtub for a total of three days before Nielsen began the task of dissecting his body upon the kitchen floor. Nielsen is again known to have informed his employer he was ill and unable to attend work on October 9, 1982, likely in order that he could complete the dissection of Allen's body. On January 26, 1983, Nielsen killed his final victim, 20-year-old Stephen St. Clair. St. Clair was last seen by acquaintances of his in the company of Nielsen, walking in the direction of a tube station. At Nielsen's flat, Sinclair fell asleep in a drug and alcohol-induced stupor in an armchair as Nielsen sat listening to the rock opera Tommy. Nielsen approached Sinclair, knelt before him, and said to himself, quote, Oh Stephen, here I go again, unquote, before strangling Sinclair with a ligature constructed with a necktie and a rope. Noting crepe bandages upon each of Sinclair's wrists, Nielsen removed these to discover several deep slash marks from where Sinclair had recently tried to kill himself. Following his usual ritual of bathing the body, Nielsen laid Sinclair's body upon his bed, applied talcum powder to the body, then arranged three mirrors around the bed before himself lying naked alongside the dead youth. Several hours later, he turned Stephen's head towards him before kissing the youth's body on the forehead and saying, Good night, Stephen. Nielsen then fell asleep alongside the body. As had been the case with both Howlett and Allen, Sinclair's body was subsequently dissected, with the various dismembered parts wrapped in plastic bags and stored either in a wardrobe, a tea chest, or within the drawer located beneath the bathtub. The bags used to seal Sinclair's remains were sealed with the same crepe bandages Nielsen had found upon Sinclair's wrists. Nielsen attempted to dispose of the flesh, internal organs, and smaller bones of all three victims killed at the Cranley Gardens by flushing their dissected remains down his toilet. In a practice which he conducted upon several victims killed at Melrose Avenue, he also boiled the heads, hands, and feet to remove the flesh of these sections of the victims' bodies. On February 4, 1983, Nielsen wrote a letter of complaint to the estate agents complaining that the drains at Cranley Gardens were blocked and that the situation for both himself and the other tenants at the property was intolerable. The following day, he refused to allow an acquaintance to enter his property, the reason being he had begun to dismember the body of Stephen Sinclair on the floor of his kitchen. Nielsen's murders were first discovered by a dino rod employee, Michael Cartran, who responded to complaints made by both Dennis Nielsen and other tenants of the 23 Cranley Gardens regarding the drains on the property being blocked on February 8, 1983. Opening a drain cover at the side of the house, Catron discovered the drain was packed with a flesh-like substance and numerous small bones of unknown origin. Catron reported his suspicions to his supervisor, Gary Wheeler, 
as he had arrived at the property at dusk. Catron and his supervisor agreed to postpone further investigation into the blockage until the following morning. Prior to leaving the property, Nielsen and a fellow tenant named Jim Alcock convened with Catron to discuss the source of the substance. Upon hearing Catron exclaim how similar the substance was in appearance to human flesh, Nielsen replied, quote, It looks to me like someone has been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken, unquote. At 7.30 a.m. the following morning, Catron and Wheeler returned to 23 Granley Gardens, by which time the drain had been cleared. This aroused suspicion of both the drain inspector and his supervisor. Catron discovered some scraps of flesh and four bones in a pipe leading from the drain, which linked the top flat to the house. To both Catron and Wheeler, the bones looked as if they originated from a human hand. Both men immediately called the police, whom, upon closer inspection, discovered further small bones and scraps, which looked to the naked eye like either human or animal flesh in the same pipe leading from the drain. These remains were taken to a mortuary at Hornsby, where the pathologist, Professor David Bowen, advised police that the remains were human, and that one particular piece of flesh, he concluded, had been a human neck bone and had bore ligature marks. Upon learning from fellow tenants at 23 Cranley Gardens that the tenant at the top floor flat from where the human remains had been flushed was Dennis Andrew Nielsen and that he worked at a job center in Kentish Town, Detective Chief Inspector Peter J. and two colleagues opted to wait outside 23 Cranley Gardens until Nielsen returned home from work. When Nielsen returned home, DCI, Jay introduced himself and his colleagues, explaining they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. Nielsen asked why the police were interested in his drains and also if the two officers present with Jay were health inspectors. In response, Jay informed Nielsen that the other two were also police officers and requested access to his flat to discuss the matter further. The three officers followed Nielsen into his flat, where they immediately noted the odor of rotting flesh. Nielsen queried further as to why the police were interested in his drains, to which he was informed that the blockages had been caused by human remains. Nielsen feigned shock and bewilderment, stating, quote, Good grief, how awful, unquote. In response, Jay replied, quote, Don't mess about, where's the rest of the body, unquote. Nielsen responded calmly, admitting that the remainder of the body could be found in two plastic bags in a nearby wardrobe, from which DCIJ and his colleagues noted the overpowering smell of decomposition emanated. The officers did not open the cupboard, but asked Nielsen if there were any other body parts to be found, to which Nielsen replied, quote, It's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest. Not here at a police station, unquote. He was then arrested and cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to Hornsby Police Station. As he was escorted to the police station by Detective Chief Inspector Jay and his colleagues, Nielsen was asked whether or not the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. Staring out of the window of the police car, he replied, quote, 15 or 16, since 1978.
That evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers accompanied Peter J. and Professor David Bowen to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe and taken to Hornsey Mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head, and a torso with arms attached but hands missing. Both heads were found to have been subjected to moist heat. In an interview conducted on February 10th, Nielsen confessed that there are further human remains stored in a tea chest in his living room, with other remains inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. The dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men, all of whom he had killed by strangulation, usually with a tie. One victim he could not name, another he knew as only John the Guardsman, and the third he identified as Stephen St. Clair. He also stated that beginning in December 1978, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address, 195 Melrose Avenue. Nielsen also admitted to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or, on one occasion, had been at the brink of death but had been revived and allowed to leave his residence. A further search for additional remains at 23 Cranley Gardens on February 10th revealed the lower section of a torso and two legs stowed in a bag in the bathroom, and a skull, a section of torso, and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nilsson accompanied police to Melrose Avenue, where he indicated the three locations in the rear garden where he had burned the remains of his victims. Investigators discovered over a thousand fragments of bones from the garden and Melrose Avenue, many of them blackened and charred by fire. The same day that the search for the additional remains at Cranley Gardens was conducted, plumber Michael Catring contacted the Daily Mirror, informing them of the ongoing search for human remains at Cranley Gardens. This newspaper published the first information pertaining to the case on February 10th. Catrin's revelation subsequently sparked an intense national media interest in the case and the unfolding events. By February 11th, reporters from the Daily Mirror had obtained photographs from Nilsson's mother in Aberdeenshire, which appeared on their front page the following day. As further details were revealed to the press over the following days, revealing that Nielsen had confessed to murdering more people than any other person in British criminal history, the case attracted international press attention. Under English law, the police had 48 hours in which to charge Nielsen or release him. Assembling the remains of the victims he killed in Cranley Gardens on the floor of Hornsey Mortuary, Professor David Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those on the police file of Stephen Sinclair. At 5.40 p.m. on February 11th, Nielsen was charged with the murders of Stephen Sinclair and a statement revealing this was released to the press. Formal questioning of Nielsen began the same evening, with Nielsen agreeing to be represented by a solicitor, a facility he had earlier declined. Police interviewed Nielsen on 16 separate occasions over the following days, in interviews which totaled over 30 hours. Nielsen was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he had killed, simply stating, quote, I'm hoping you will tell me that. When asked his motive for the murders, he was adamant the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. 
Most victims had been killed by strangulation. On several occasions, he had drowned the victims once they had been strangled into unconsciousness. Once the victim had been killed, he typically bathed the victim's body, shaved any hair from the torso to conform it to his physical ideal, then applied makeup to any obvious blemishes upon the skin. The body was usually dressed in socks and underpants, before Nielsen draped the victims around him as he talked to the corpse. With most victims, Nielsen masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body. As Nielsen confessed to having occasionally engaged in intercural sex with the victim's bodies, but repeatedly stressed to investigators he had never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex, unquote. All the victims' personal possessions were destroyed following the ritual of bathing their bodies in an effort to obliterate their identity prior to the murder, and they're now becoming what Nielsen described as a, quote, prop in his fantasies. In several instances, Nielsen talked to the victims' bodies as it remained seated in a chair or prone on his bed, and he recalled being emotional as he marveled at the beauty of his victims' bodies. With reference to one victim, Kenneth Ockenden, Nielsen noted that Ockenden's body, quote, was very beautiful, adding the sight, quote, almost brought me to tears. Another unidentified victim had been so emaciated that he had simply been discarded under the floorboards. The bodies of the victims killed at his previous address were kept for as long as decomposition would allow. Upon noting any major signs of decomposition, Nelson stowed it beneath his floorboards. If a body did not display any signs of decomposition, he occasionally alternately stowed it beneath the floorboards and retrieved it before again masturbating as he stood over or laid alongside the body. Makeup was again applied to, quote, enhance its appearance and to obscure blemishes. When questioned as to why the heads found in Cranley Gardens had been subjected to moist heat, Nielsen stated that he had frequently boiled the heads of his victims in a large cooking pot on his stove in order that the internal contents evaporated, thus removing the need to dispose of brains and flesh. The torsos and limbs of three victims killed in the addresses were dissected within a week or so of their murder before being wrapped in plastic bags and stowed in three locations. He had indicated to police the internal organs and smaller bones he flushed down the toilet. This practice, which had led to his arrest, had been the only method he could consider to dispose of the internal organs and soft tissue. Unlike at Melrose Avenue, he had no exclusive use of the garden of the property. At Melrose Avenue, Nielsen typically retained the victim's bodies for a much longer period before disposing of the remains. He kept, quote, three or four bodies stowed beneath the floorboard before he would dissect the remains, which he would wrap inside a plastic bag and either return under the floorboards or, in two instances, placed inside suitcases, which had been left at the property by a previous tenant. The remains stowed inside the suitcases, those of Kenneth Ockerden and Martin Duffy, were placed inside a shed in the rear garden and were disposed of upon the second bonfire Nielsen had constructed at Melrose Avenue. Other dissected remains, minus the internal organs, were returned beneath the floorboards or placed upon the bonfire he had constructed in the garden. Nielsen confirmed that on four occasions he had removed the accumulated bodies from beneath his floorboards and dissected the remains. 
and on three of these occasions he had then disposed of the accumulated remains upon an assembled bonfire. On more than one occasion he had removed the internal organs from the victims' bodies and placed them in bags, which he then typically dumped behind the fence to be eaten by wildlife. All the bodies of victims killed at Melrose Avenue were dismembered after several weeks or months of internment beneath the floorboards, and Nielsen recalled that the putrefaction of these victims' bodies made this task vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which to brush aside the maggots from the remains. Often he vomited as he dissected the bodies before wrapping the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carrying the remains to the bonfires. Nonetheless, immediately prior to his dissecting the victim's bodies, Nielsen masturbated as he knelt or sat alongside the corpse. This, he stated, was his symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to his victims. When questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, Nielsen replied, quote, I wish I could stop but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness, unquote. He also emphasized that he took no pleasure from the act of killing, but, quote, worshiped the art and the act of death, unquote. On February 11th, 1983, Nielsen was officially charged with the murder of Stephen Sinclair. He was transferred to Brixton Prison to be held on remand until his trial. According to Nielsen, upon being transferred to Brixton Prison to await trial, his mood was one of, quote, resignation and relief, and his belief was that he would be viewed, in accordance with the law, as innocent until proven guilty. Nielsen objected to wearing prison uniform while on remand. In protest at having to wear a prison uniform and what he interpreted to be breaches of prison rules, Nielsen threatened to protest against his remand conditions by refusing to wear any clothes. As a result of this threat, he was not allowed to leave his cell. On August 1st, Nilsson threw the contents of his chamber pot out of his cell, hitting several prison officers. This incident resulted in Nilsson being found guilty on August 9th of assaulting prison officers and subsequently spending 56 days in solitary confinement. On May 26, 1983, Nilsson was committed to stand trial at the Old Bailey on five counts of murder and two of attempted murder. A sixth murder charge was later added. Throughout this committal hearing, Nilsson was represented by a solicitor named Ronald Moss, whom he had previously dismissed as his legal representation on April 21st, before Moss was again reappointed as Nilsson's legal representative, after Nilsson had complained to the magistrates that he had been afforded no facilities with which he could mount his own defense. Moss was to remain Nielsen's legal representative until July 1983, when Nielsen, again expressing his own intention to defend himself, discharged his legal aid. On August 5th, Nielsen reappointed Ronald Moss as his legal representative. Initially, Nielsen had intended to plead guilty to each charge of murder at his upcoming trial. With Nielsen's full consent, Ronald Moss had fully prepared Nielsen's defense. Five weeks before his trial, Nielsen again dismissed the legal services of Ronald Moss and opted instead to be represented by Ralph Himes, upon whose advice Nielsen had agreed to plead not guilty by diminished responsibility. <laughs>
Dennis Nielsen was brought to trial on October 24, 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two of attempted murder. He was tried at the Old Bailey before Judge Sir David Croom Johnson. The trial began with Nielsen being asked by the chief administrator of the court whether or not he entered a plea of guilty or not guilty in relation to each charge. In response to each charge, Nielsen entered a plea of not guilty. Upon completion of his pleas, the jury was sworn into the courtroom. The primary dispute between the prosecution and the defense counsel was not whether Nielsen had killed, but his state of mind before, during, and after he had killed. With the prosecuting counsel, Alan Green, arguing that Nielsen was sane in full control of his actions and had killed with premeditation, and the defense counsel, Ivan Lawrence, arguing that Nielsen suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming actual intention to commit murder, and should therefore be convicted of manslaughter as opposed to murder. The prosecution's counsel opened case for the Crown by describing the events of February 1983 leading to the identification of human remains in the drains at Cranley Gardens, and the subsequent arrest of the defendant. The discovery of three dismembered bodies in Nielsen's property, his detailed confession, his leading investigators to the charred bone fragments of 12 further victims at Melrose Avenue, and the efforts Nielsen had taken to conceal his crimes. In a tactful reference to the primary dispute between opposing counsels at the trial, Alan Green closed his opening speech with the reply Nielsen had given to the police in response to a question as to whether he needed to kill. Quote, at the precise moment of the act, I believe I am right in doing the act. Unquote. To counteract this argument, Green added, quote, The Crown says that even if there was a mental abnormality that was not sufficient to diminish substantially his responsibility for these killings, unquote. The first witness to testify for the prosecution was Douglas Stewart, who had testified that in November of 1980 he had woken to Nielsen's flat to find his ankles bound and Nielsen strangling him as Nielsen straddled him. Successfully overpowering Nielsen, Stewart testified Nielsen had then shouted, quote, Take my money. This, the prosecution attested, reflected Nielsen's rational, cool presence of mind in that Nielsen hoped to be overheard by other tenants. Upon leaving Nielsen's residence, Stewart had reported the attack to police, who turned questioned Nielsen. Noting conflicting details and accounts given by both men, the police had dismissed the incident as a lover's quarrel. Upon cross-examination, the defense counsel sought to undermine Stewart's credibility, pointing to a minor inconsistencies in testimony. The fact he had consumed much alcohol on the night in question, and suggesting his memory had been selectively magnified as he had previously sold his story to the press. On October 25th, the court heard testimony from two further men who had survived attempts by Nielsen to strangle them. The first of these, Paul Nobbs, provided testimony of the prosecution asserted was evidence of Nielsen's self-control and ability to refrain from homicidal impulses. A university student, Nobbs testified that he had accompanied Nelson to Cranley Gardens for alcohol and sex and woke in the early hours of the morning with, quote, a terrible headache. Upon washing his face in Nielsen's bathroom, as Nobb noted his eyes were bloodshot, and his face was completely red. Nielsen had exclaimed, quote, God, you look bloody awful. Nielsen then advised the youth to see a doctor. 
Nobbs had not reported the attack to police for fear of his sexuality being discovered. Contrary to the prosecution's claims, the defense counsel asserted that Nobbs' testimony reflected Nielsen's rational self being unable to control his impulse. The fact that Nielsen had selected a university student as a potential victim was at odds with the prosecution's claims that Nielsen intentionally selected rootless males whose disappearance was unlikely to be noted. Immediately after the testimony of Paul Nobbs had concluded, Carl Stoker took the stand to recount how, in May 1982, Nielsen had attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him, quote, back to life. Strutter's voice frequently quavered with emotion as he recounted how Nielsen had repeatedly attempted to drown him in his bathtub as he pleaded in vain for his life to be spared, and how he later awoke to found Nielsen's mongrel dog licking his face. On several occasions, the judge had allowed Strutter time to regain his composure. The evidence provided by Strutter was not included as part of the indictment against Nielsen, as his whereabouts were not known until after the indictment had been completed. Detective Chief Inspector Peter Jay then recounted the circumstances of Nielsen's arrest and his, quote, calm, matter-of-fact confessions, before reading to the court several statements volunteered by Nielsen following his arrest. In one of these statements, Nielsen had said, quote, I have no tears for my victims, I have no tears for myself, nor those bereaved by my actions, unquote. Jay admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in providing information, and conceded upon questioning by defense counsel that Nielsen not only provided most of the evidence against himself, but also encouraged the discovery of evidence which could contradict his own version of events. Following the testimony of DCIJ, Detective Superintendent Chambers recited Nielsen's formal confession to the court. This testimony included graphic descriptions of the ritualistic and sexual acts Nielsen performed with his victims, his various methods of storage of the bodies and or body parts, dismemberment and disposal, and the problems of decomposition, particularly regarding the colonies of maggots, afforded him. Several members of the jury were visibly shaken throughout this testimony. Others looked at Nielsen with incredulous expressions on their face as Nielsen listened to the testimony with apparent indifference. This testimony lasted until the following morning with the prosecution included several exhibits into evidence. This included the cooking pot in which Nielsen had boiled the heads of his victims killed at Cranley Gardens, the cutting boards Nielsen had used to dissect John Hollett and several rusted catering knives, which had formerly belonged to victim Martin Duffy. Two psychiatrists testified on behalf of the defense. First of these, Dr. James McKeith, began his testimony on October 26th. McKeith testified as to how, through a lack of emotional development, Nielsen experienced difficulty expressing any emotion other than anger, and his tendency to treat other human beings as components of his fantasy. The psychiatrist also described Nielsen's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal, stating that Nielsen possessed narcissistic traits, an impaired sense of identity, and was able to dispersonalize other people. He stated that his conclusions that Nielsen displayed many signs of maladapted behavior, with the combination of which, in one man, was lethal. These factors could be attributed to unspecified personality disorder. 
from which McKeith believed Nielsen suffered. In response to prosecution's contention that in attributing an unspecified disorder to Nielsen, McKeith was undecided in his conclusions, McKeith contended that this unspecified personality disorder was severe enough to substantially reduce Nielsen's responsibility. The second psychiatrist to testify for the defense, Dr. Patrick Galloway, diagnosed Nielsen with a, quote, borderline false self as pseudonormal narcissistic personality disorder, unquote. With occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances that Nielsen managed most of the time to keep at bay, Galway stated, in episodic breakdowns, Nielsen became predominantly schizoid acting in an impulsive, violent, and sudden manner. Galway further added that someone suffering from these episodic breakdowns is most likely to disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation. In effect, Nielsen was not guilty of malice afterthought. Upon cross-examination, Alan Green largely focused upon the degree of awareness shown by Nielsen and his ability to make decisions. Dr. Galway conceded that Nielsen was intellectually aware of his actions, but stressed that due to his personality disorder, Nielsen did not appreciate the nature of his actions. On October 31st, the prosecution called Dr. Paul Bowden to testify in rebuttal of the psychiatrist who had testified for the defense counsel. Prior to Nielsen's trial, Dr. Bowden had interviewed the defendants on 16 separate occasions in interviews totaling over 14 hours. Over two days, Dr. Bowden testified that, although he found Nielsen to be abnormal in a colloquial sense, he had concluded Nielsen to be a manipulative person who had been capable of forming relationships but had forced himself to objectify people. Refuting the testimony of Dr. McKeith and Dr. Galway, Bowden further testified that he found no evidence of a maladaptive behavior and that Nielsen suffered from no disorder of the mind. Following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defense, the jury retired to consider their verdict. On November 3, 1983, the following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one of attempted murder with the unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Paul Nobbs. The judge sentenced Nielsen to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years imprisonment. Following his conviction, Nielsen was transferred to Wormwood Scrubs Prison to begin his sentence. As a Category A prisoner, Nielsen was assigned his own cell and could mix freely with other inmates. Nielsen did not lodge an appeal, accepting that the Crown's case, that he had the capacity to control his actions and that he had killed with premeditation, was essentially correct. He further elaborated that on the day of his conviction that he took an enormous thrill from the, quote, social seduction, the getting the friend back, the decision to kill, the body, and its disposal. 
Nielsen also claimed drunkenness was the sole reason at least two of his attempted murders were unsuccessful. In December of 1983, Nielsen was cut on the face and the chest with a razor blade by an inmate named Albert Moffat, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Afterwards, he was briefly transferred to Parkhurst Prison before being transferred to Wakefield Prison, where he remained until 1990. In 1991, he was transferred to a vulnerable prison unit at Full Sutton Prison upon concerns for his safety. He remained there until 1993 when he was again transferred to Whitmore Prison, again as a Category A prisoner, and with an increased segregation from other inmates. The minimum term of 25 years to life imprisonment to which Nielsen was sentenced in 1983 was replaced by a whole life tariff by the Home Secretary, Michael Howard. In December 1994, this ruling ensured that he would never be released from prison, a punishment he accepted. In 2003, Nielsen was again transferred to HMP Full Sutton, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, Nielsen translated books into Braille. He spent much of his free time reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. He also exchanged letters with numerous people who sought his correspondence. In September 1992, Central Television conducted an interview with Dennis Nielsen as part of a TV series, Viewpoint, Murder in Mind, which focused upon offender profiling. A four-minute section of this interview, in which Nielsen frankly discusses his crimes, was initially scheduled to be broadcast on January 19, 1993. The Home Office sought to ban the interview from being broadcast, on the grounds that he had not granted permission for the Central Television to conduct interviews with Nielsen, which were later broadcast to the public, and claimed ownership of the copyrighted material. Central Television challenged the ruling by the Home Office to ban the interview from public screening, citing sections of the 1988 Copyright Design and Patterns Act, and that full permission conducted at the interview with Nielsen had been granted in advance. The decision not to ban the interview from public screening was made on January 26, 1993, and the interview was screened in full that evening. Nielsen remained alert to trade union activities and repeatedly sought legal avenues to challenge real and perceived abuses of prison rules by warders, regularly petitioning the Home Office and later the European Court of Human Rights with complaints. As a result, he was an unpopular inmate with successive governors at various prisons in which he was incarcerated. In October 2001, Nielsen brought a judicial review against the prison service, citing that the homosexual softcore pornography magazines Falcons and Him, to which he subscribed regularly, had some images and articles of a more explicit nature removed before the magazines reached him. The legal case he brought against the prison service was dismissed because he could not establish that any breach of his human rights had occurred. In the years following his incarceration, Nielsen composed an unpublished 400-page autobiography entitled The History of a Drowning Boy, the title being a reference to his concepts of tranquility of death following the death of his grandfather at sea and his own near-fatal drowning in 1954. A copy of The History of a Drowning Boy remains in the possession of one of the people with whom Nielsen corresponded and in whom Nielsen held an unquestioning trust. 
In his autobiography, Nilsson stated that beginning with his service in the British Army, he constantly lived two separate lives, his real life and his fantasy life. He writes, quote, When I was with people, I was in the real world, and in my private life, I snapped instantly into my fantasy life. I could oscillate between the two with instant ease, unquote. In reference to his murders, Nielsen claimed that his emotional state upon the dates of the murders, in conjunction with the amount of alcohol he consumed, were both core factors in his decision to kill. He further emphasized that when feeling low, seizing an opportunity to satisfy the sexual fantasies he had developed in which the victim is the young, attractive, and passive partner and he, the older, active partner, temporarily relieved him of a general feeling of inadequacy. The first murder victim of Dennis Nielsen was identified in 2006 as 14-year-old Stephen Dean Holmes. Formal identification was confirmed via a combination of circumstantial evidence and by Nielsen identifying a photograph of the youth shown to him by police. All bone fragments found at Melrose Avenue had been destroyed. Nielsen was not charged with this murder as the Crown Prosecution Service decided that the prosecution would not be in the public interest and would not contribute to the current sentence. At least four victims killed between 1980 and 1981 at Melrose Avenue remain unidentified. A forensic expert testified at Nielsen's 1983 trial that, quote, at least eight bodies had been incinerated at Melrose Avenue, academically confirming that he had murdered at least 11 victims. Several items confiscated from Nielsen's Cranley Garden address, some of which had been introduced as evidence at Nielsen's trial, are on display at the New Scotland Yard's Black Museum. These exhibits include the stove upon which Nielsen had boiled the heads of his final three victims, the knives he had used to dissect several victims' bodies, the headphones Nielsen had used to strangle Kenneth Ockerden, the ligature he had fashioned to strangle his last victim, and the bath from the Cranley Gardens address in which he had drowned John Howlett and retained the body of Graham Allen prior to dissection. Nielsen was still officially a prisoner when he died at York Hospital on May 12, 2018. He had been taken to the hospital on May 10th after complaining of stomach pains. He later suffered a blood clot as a result of surgery complications. Dennis Nielsen was what is classified as a product killer, one of the rarest forms of serial killer. Product killers kill in order to achieve some end result. They don't take pleasure in the killing itself, and in some cases wouldn't even do it if it weren't for needing the end product. The end product Nielsen needed was a corpse that he could pale the skin of with makeup and then act out his sexual fantasies. Also, even though he claims to have never penetrated his victims' corpses, he is classified as a necrophile, more specifically a tactile necrophiliac. 
Tactile necrophiliacs are people who are aroused by touching or stroking of a corpse, even without engaging in intercourse. He also derived pleasure from dissecting his victims post-mortem. In my opinion, Dennis Nielsen would have never stopped killing had he not been captured. His need to kill would have only increased, and thus his body count would have grown larger. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. Also, visit my webpage at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. You can also follow me on Instagram at michael.prit81. I will return in two weeks with a new case to present, so until then, stay safe.